Welcome to TYT's A Conversation, it is your host Adrian Lawrence. Today I am joined by Rebecca Parson who is running for, uh, well I believe it's Washington 6th Congressional District. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, glad to be here. Yeah, she'll have to forgive the pauses. I'm from California, so we don't recognize any state indicia outside of California. So when I saw the <laughs> WA, I'm like Wisconsin. Which I was like, you know this, so girl, so help me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You knew it was a state, and a lot of people don't realize. <laughs> hey, well, that's a good thing that we're all here, and we are all here, definitely fighting for the state of our nation as a whole. And I understand that you are a 35-year-old queer democratic socialist, and that you're really taking on the leadership when it comes to the Democratic Party, um, and really just getting rid of the right wing. What is it that you're bringing to the platform that is so unique and different? Well, all up and down that West Coast, I'm sure you know in California as well, housing is a huge problem. Affordable housing is almost impossible to find. Homelessness is increasing. We have 600,000 homeless people in this country, 120,000 of them are children and 40,000 are veterans. Yet across the country, there are more empty homes uh, more empty homes than homeless people, including in every county in my district. There are actually 28 empty homes for every homeless person in this country. So one of the big things that's important to me that I'm running on that would help my district and the country so much is more affordable housing. What that would look like is something like national rent control, which we have had before for brief periods under both FDR and Nixon. And I also support investing billions of dollars into buying, rehabbing, and building more social housing so that we can get homeless people into homes. And we can also have people who can't afford to buy a home or they can't afford to start a family. They're in their 30s, still doubled up with roommates or their family. And they want to be able to buy a home, start a family like so many generations before them have. So housing is something that's really important to me to address both for my district and the whole country. And I really appreciate that you brought that up. And also to the educational point, the fact is that we've had kind of that that limit, that curb when it comes to rent and everything. We've had that before, so people don't realize it's nothing novel that's coming up out of nowhere. The fact is that there is precedent for it. And so knowing that FDR, Nixon, that it has been done, I think that that can help move people along. And what I think move people along in terms of you and truly seeing the devotion and dedication you have to housing was the fact that you gained attention by living in your Prius. Is that right? Yep, I have actually. I'm self-employed as a small business owner, and this pandemic has been difficult. Not enough, you know, like me and like millions of others around the country, not enough support from the federal government. So for a period, I was living couch surfing on friends' couches, and then also in my car, which is a Prius. And yeah, it was difficult. I'm now in a stable housing situation, but it really brought it home to me personally that we do not have enough of a safety net in this country. And uh, my background, you know, both that as well as uh, two years ago, I co-founded and took uh, took part in a group called Tacoma Housing Now that occupied empty buildings, including an empty public building that had been empty for over a decade. And we wanted to turn it into emergency pandemic housing and then transition it to permanent housing. And we did things like pick up trash from homeless camps since the city refused to do it. And then we dumped it in front of city hall and then city council started providing trash service to the camps. They added 200 shelter beds in our city. And I've seen what that kind of direct action can do. And so that's what I'm interested in doing in Congress. A lot of people are very frustrated with politics right now with both parties and rightly so. And I don't think that electoral politics by itself is the answer. I think that having 
people in Congress like myself with the experience personally and with direct action to then get in, use my platform to call and for and organize more direct actions and possibly even do at a national level what we did in Tacoma. You know, occupy empty buildings nationwide and bring attention to the housing issue and actually solve it for once after decades and decades of failure. You would think that uh, since so many of us pay taxes and we contribute to the system, that the system would actually look for ways in which to bolster us and to uplift us. But it doesn't seem to be the case. And I would argue that's because of the elected leaders we've chosen. And so it really sounds like you are looking to bring something different to the platform, to the table, to truly look to bolster the people who are funding and uplifting and choosing their representatives. And so when it also comes to representing people who are from marginalized groups, because it as interesting as it is, the fact that there are the 1%, which are truly the minority, yet the 99% who suffer. Um, but it sounds like you have a lot of experience representing marginalized groups. I know that you worked for several years with the International Association of Genocide Scholars. Also, um, being the commissioner of the Tacoma Area Commission on Disabilities, it really sounds like you have your finger on the pulse when it comes to individuals who are marginalized in terms of groups. Is there anything specific in addition to what you've already mentioned that you would do to uplift those voices? Absolutely. One thing we need to do is raise the minimum wage. You know, we've heard a lot about the fight for 15, but that fight was started 10 years ago. And so, unfortunately, $15 is now an outdated demand. And if you look at the MIT living wage calculator uh, and look at what the minimum living wage actually is in this country, everywhere in the country, the base is $30 an hour. It's even higher in places like Seattle, San Francisco, New York, but everywhere in the country, every county, Rural, suburban, small town, big city, $30 per hour is the absolute floor. And that would go so, such a long way to helping people. If they had a job at 40 hours a week, uh, good benefits, they were making a decent living wage, they would be able to go to school, start a family, buy a home, do all these things that people want to do everywhere in the country. So that $30 minimum wage is extremely important. People ask, how will you pay for it? Well, right now we have an economy that is structured for the 1%, like you mentioned. We have subsidies just flowing, billions and trillions of dollars of subsidies to 1% to corporations. You know, We, the public, pay for the food stamps of Walmart employees who are on those food stamps. And so what can we do? We can redirect subsidies away from those corporations and to small businesses and local communities to increase the minimum wage. Yeah, that would be a beautiful thing. And it's so incredibly just eye-opening when you see that other countries do this naturally. Where they actually mm -hmm. look again to take care of their people, where they are not looking to turn a profit as much as to see their individuals as profit profit in terms of the human capital and truly to invest in that. And you would think that that would be the focus of America, but it is not, um, which is completely and totally unfortunate. Uh, but hey, it's the world in which we live in. And I know that there are some specific concerns that may be arising there in that district in particular. Did you want to speak to those? Yeah, climate change is a big issue there. We have a lot of coastline in my district. We're on the northwest corner of the continental United States. So we have a, a lot of coastline, a lot of downtowns, and also a lot of uh, reservations, tribal property that will just be underwater soon. And so we need to really address climate change, stop the billions of dollars that are going to fossil fuel companies and redirect it to renewable energy and get to get end the fossil fuel industry by 2030 and move to 100% renewable energy. And that would help with another problem in my district, which is a huge lack of good jobs. Uh, there used to be a thriving timber industry in my district. 
and that has completely collapsed and nothing came to replace it. There are just no jobs have come in, homelessness, uh, mental health issues, uh, drug abuse, over, um, homelessness, addiction, overdoses, all of that has increased in the wake of that. And so as part of the Green New Deal, which I support, I would also support a national jobs program, which has, a, we have had national jobs programs in the past and they were popular in my district, including under uh, FDR, you know, they had jobs programs coming to the district and people remember that here. So the Green New Deal to help with climate change and rising sea levels, as well as the jobs program that comes with it so that more people in my district could have a job and then also have a good job. Yeah, yeah, having a good job, you know, because this thought that at least we hear from Joe Manchin, the thought that people don't necessarily want to work or they want to get handouts, and that is not the truth in any way. Mm -hmm. It seems that people definitely do want to contribute to their society and they want to use their skills. And so to provide them with opportunities is something that um, leaders should be doing on a regular basis because just because our society is evolving and changing and developing doesn't mean that individuals should be left behind, particularly when it comes to our education system and teaching you the skills that you need. And it really sounds like you are aligned in that, essentially along that path to ensure that individuals have the opportunities that are fit for them. And so I guess if you are elected, what would you do when it comes to first day in office? If you could truly rub that genie bottle and be able to make the change that you want, what would you do first off? I would like to introduce a housing bill that would promote rent control nationwide, build these millions of units of social housing that we need, enact that national jobs program and enact a, or enact, you know, I can't do it single-handedly, but if I did have my you know, magic wish, uh, enact a, a Green New Deal to get us off fossil fuels by 2030. Um, that's the big thing, climate change, that made me decide to run for Congress in 2020. And again, this time is that we don't address climate change. A lot of other stuff will just become moot. And we really need to get away from fossil fuels and over to renewables as quickly as we possibly can. And we absolutely do. It will be our downfall and it's a collective downfall. I don't necessarily, you know, well, it will definitely hit those who are most marginalized uh, first. The reality is it's not something that people can necessarily buy their way out of. And it seems that the 1% has forgotten that quickly. But hopefully they will not forget your name when it comes to day, the day to vote. Uh, so when it comes to uh, the next election, when should people look for your name on the ballot? Uh, ballots drop on July 15th and then election day is August 2nd. We're 100% mail in state. So if you're in Washington state in the sixth district watching this, look out for your ballot in the mail and either get it in the mail or in a drop box by August 2nd. All right, and since I am somewhat aware that Washington is that place up in the corner on the left, not quite as far as Alaska goes, but just in case anyone in Washington isn't quite sure, I'm telling them where it is. But can you tell people where it is that they can find more about your campaign and the work that you do when it comes to social media? Absolutely, so if you're in Tacoma or the Olympic Peninsula or Kitsap County, you're in my district, probably if you're in Tacoma as well. And you can find out more at RebeccaParson.com and follow me. My handle is the same on all social media, Rebecca for W-A, F-O-R-W-A. Wonderful, that's Rebecca Parson for Congress in Washington 6th Congressional District. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you.
Welcome back. It is the conversation and it is Adrian Lawrence. And this time I'm bringing you the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. That's a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of black LGBTQ plus people, including people living with HIV AIDS. That is Mr. David Johns. Thank you for joining us, David. Thank you for having me again, Adrian. Yes, David. So there has been a lot going on. It, it's just it it has really been a number for a number of us, particularly when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. So I'm just going to open the floor and ask you what has resonated with you most. At least two things are resonating with me. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the implications of the war on drugs and the fact that one of the let's just assume unintended consequences of the war on drugs was the removal of black men from households and the black community. And I worry greatly about the criminalization of birthing bodies, in particular non-white birthing bodies being criminalized for something that is required to reproduce our social order. As a sociologist, someone who recently obtained a PhD in sociology, I understand that um, societies are recreated by being able to birth new generations of people who understand the importance of recreating and established social order. And knowing that white people in the way that we conceptualize them are diminishing with regard to birthing patterns and um, the ability to live long lives continues to vex me when I think about the attacks on non-white bodies in this regard. The second thing that gives me great concern and keeps me up at night to be quite honest is knowing um, the lines of the poem um, and then they came, which is that the attacks on certain members of our community, right? All of us are human beings who exist in a society that marks us as different based on socially constructed identity constructs, right? Uh, what it means for me to be a black gender loving man is imagined as something that's been created by people over time to reference uh, certain spaces that I'm supposed to occupy socially, politically, economically, and being mindful of the fact that there have been concerted and consistent efforts to attack, um, marginalize, and at most um, exterminate particular members of our community. That is me knowing that once they are done with particular segments of our community, they'll come for others of us as well. Yep, and I think that that has definitely been something that at least should resonate with so many people. The fact is that when they go after a particular group, they are hoping for your silence. And when you are silent, then they come after you. And so it's a very it's a very constructed almost eradication and genocide. And we've seen that with a lot of people and groups over our society in various different cultures. And it's very shocking to see that we continue to relive this history, it seems, day in and day out. And especially when it comes to the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and we're seeing it, the pattern happen again in terms of we are not only regressing. But we are also continuing to allow people to encroach upon spaces where individual civil rights are being removed. And then it'll be the next set of groups rights and so on and so forth. So what would you want people to know? Uh, uh, what I want people to know is that no one is safe. That all of us are implicated in this all out assault on the rights of members of our 
civilization, people who are humans who should have autonomy over their bodies, if nothing else. And in this moment, I am acutely aware of the fact that there were a significant percentage of white women who voted for Donald Trump, who enabled the packing of this court to be able to overturn Roe and possibly other civil rights that have been granted by the judicial branch when the legislative and executive branch did not live up to its responsibilities with regard to living out the will of our populace, of our community more generally. And my hope is that if at no other point in our history that we understand the words of Bell Hooks who talked about that every generation is responsible for defending democracy. And our democracy in this country in particular is infinitesimal, right? Like we are infants with regard to the development of other countries around the world. And I hope that those of us who have enjoyed being American citizens, who have um, celebrated independence heretofore, understand that we are obligated to stand up in defense of the rights of other citizens, of people who are not in positions of privilege or power heretofore, but who deserve to have their civil rights respected by every branch of government, in particular the judicial branch. And it seems that people are so comfortable with allowing tyranny to exist as long as it serves their own objectives. But again, the reality is that tyranny will turn on you the moment that it realizes you have too much power. Literally. So yeah, and it's it's just very, uh, I guess, disappointing that people don't see this, especially when we have history to inform us and we've seen it. But then again, we see why uh, there's so many members of the GOP who are invested in ensuring uh, young people don't get the education that they need because then if they see the patterns, they'll see it being used on them. Uh, but that's a whole different ballpark. I do know that there have been some definitely definite developments when it comes to black women in particular when it comes to Brittany Griner. And the fact is that we know she is in the middle of her trial there in Russia, her being held being a black queer woman. And also on drug charges where she could face up to 10 years, probably minimum in prison there, which is very scary. And we understand that the letter that she wrote to President Biden was essentially pleading for her safety because she fears she will never come home and I fear that as well. And so when it comes to uplifting voices and ensuring people are safe, it seems that black women are the least of us as we've seen Malcolm X make that clear. And when it comes to Brittany Griner, what do you think people are missing? I think they're missing that she's a black woman who is assumed to be responsible for and capable of bearing all of what society will throw at her and missing her humanity at the same time. I spent a lot of hours thinking about and listening to the interview between her wife and Robin Roberts. It wasn't Robin Roberts, it was Oprah's best friend, Gail, <laughs> Gail King, where she talked about what it meant to miss her partner and to worry about her safety. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what it would mean for Brittany Griner to exist in a world where her black womanness and her queerness were things that made her disposable. And what I know now in this moment is that we can't trust anything that comes out of the Russian government, that we should have already been concerned about the allegations against Brittany Griner. And those of us who understand the sting of stigma should be committed to ensuring that she is returned home safely. To think about her being at the top of her career, 
at, at, at the height of entrepreneurship with regard to what black women are capable of and for her to be susceptible to being a victim of the criminal system in Russia um, leaves me confounded and frustrated and angry. And my hope is that this administration, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. in particular, is doing all that they can to ensure that she is returned safely to her family uh, as soon as possible. Absolutely, and I see you're calling out full names, so I know you're telling the truth. But when it comes to also with Brittany Griner, she is at the peak of intersectionality. The fact is that the moment I remember that they said, uh, by the way, it came from Russia releasing it on their media to let us know as Americans that they had her. And the moment that they announced that news uh, about being about drugs, I saw so many white Americans who were out here protesting George Floyd were like, yeah, she got caught with drugs. They were so easy and so willing to believe that this black woman had drugs on her. And then on top of that, refusing to recognize her vulnerability also being queer in a country that does not respect queer rights or human rights for that matter. And then also being a woman by virtue of the fact that she was over there playing uh, playing basketball because she is not paid her worth here in the United States. Right. Again, epitome of intersectionality. And then also seeing Biden, which I completely understand people do what they need to do. But the United States gambled to let go one of the few assets that they had were for Russian assets for another trade. And as I understand, the US has one other Russian asset in its possession, uh, a gentleman kind of known as, uh, he's, a, he's an arms dealer, That's let's right. just say that. And so if the US wanted to make a trade, it could, but will it? Because I really feel that this represents how the US treats black women. That's right. And that's and what Bernie Griner represents. And all of this was made public before the war on the Ukraine was made public to all of us. Remember, this was not a war before it was recently proclaimed as a reclamation of land that Russia believes was ceded to them some time ago. So all of this should not be lost on us. And the fact that a black woman is made to be a political pawn is not new to us. Um, This is something that we've seen before. We've seen this movie play out time and time again. And we should do all that we can to make sure that this black woman that, that our sisters return home as safely as possible. Absolutely, and something that always resonates with me because I only saw it once and I saw it on CNN, is that when Biden in his first year, when he called Putin a murderer, Putin right. responded back in Russian, essentially saying, you're calling me a murderer, look how you treat your blacks. And there was one woman, a white woman who was doing the translations on CNN and they only played that clip once, but I watched it and yeah. she told the truth about it. Because other people in the rest of the world, they see it. And I've seen it in my own travels of how they treat me when I say I am from the United States. They treat me very different than they treat my white brothers and sisters who go visit abroad because they realize that I am marginalized and I am misrepresented and that essentially I am preyed upon. And so there is something there that people need to recognize the rest of the world sees. And the fact that Putin is now using that as leverage and hopefully the US will do what it needs to do, especially when it's saying out here that Black women are so important, especially when it comes to elections with the Democratic Party. But I know there is so much to unpack there. And I really, really appreciate you coming and joining us and sharing us with us your insight. And so if there are people out there who want to get to know more, who want to follow you, follow your voice, follow the work that you do, where can they find you? I appreciate that. I would encourage people to reach out to the White House to let them know that they want Brittany Griner to be returned home safely. Um, to the White House specifically and the State Department um, more precisely. And you can follow us at NBJC on the move across digital platforms and nbjc.org is our website. 
thank you for making space for this conversation. Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us. That's David Johns, Executive Director of the National Black Justice Coalition. We really appreciate you joining us. Yeah.